All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Time. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the sixth day of November, 2018, Election Day. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you every week that I publish a newsletter that's focused primarily on the mining sector and the junior exploration sector specifically. You can uh, sign up for that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. would also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Uh, by going to chenpicks.com. Chen is specializing in the biotech sector, doing very well. We'll have to have Chen on the show sometime soon again to talk about some of his exciting biotech stocks that are doing, well, they're really, uh, you can make a lot of money, but they are very volatile and they require a lot of effort to keep on top of them. And Chen does that on behalf of his subscribers. And as always, I like to uh, mention Michael Oliver as well. We'll be talking to Michael in just a minute or so. Uh, MSA.MSA. OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Go there to sign up for Michael's special offer. Uh, well, it's, he's got an offer in which he covers almost everything imaginable in the world with his with his excellent technical work. But he's also providing a lower cost a subscription to people who are interested uh, primarily or to a great extent in, in the precious metals. So we'll be talking to Michael about that and some of the other issues in just a minute or two. Uh, do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I'd also like to invite you to keep your criticism, questions, praises, comments, whatever thoughts you have, keep them coming to questions for taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail. .com. We do also want to thank our sponsors because they make this show by, uh, economically viable. Uh, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. are the sponsors for this week's show. I've titled this week's show, Politics and Economics Behind Global Climate Change. F. William Engdell, Michael Oliver, and Nolan Watson, uh, the CEO of Sandstorm Gold, are our return guests today. With religious fervor, collectivist politicians and policymakers declare with 100% certainty that post-industrial age humans are the primary cause of global change, or climate change, I should say, global warming. They demand the cessation of vast, or at least the vast reduction of fossil fuel consumption. They cite as fact that 99% of all scientists agree that humans cause uh, global warming, and that they are at the heart of it. But what they never tell you is that the scientists that are in their database have all been paid to write papers on that topic of global warming with a predetermined outcome. 
dictated by the elite who are paying their uh, they're paying who are paying their fees to get them to write these uh, these uh, so-called um, papers, and they are coming out of uh, various uh, prestigious think tanks as well. All of this is, uh, to a great extent, in my view, propaganda. And I have tried to look honestly at both sides of this. You know, we've had uh, a Harvard professor on the show in the past who's talked about it uh, very uh, convincingly, uh, but we've had other people as well. And William Engdahl. While we won't get into the science of it today, uh, there won't be much time for that, uh, nor either of us are experts, we will be looking at the politics that's driving uh, this, um, uh, the global warming climate change agenda. Um, so also, uh, you know, there are people out there, uh, Patrick Michaels, for example, a very legitimate, client, uh, legitimate climate scientist who definitely has provided a great deal of information on the other side of the uh, of the political agenda of the elite. Uh, so we'll talk to William Engdahl about that. Um, less theoretical, but much more important in, in the near term, is an update for Sandstorm Gold, which company is building an asset base of very exciting streaming and royalty projects poised for dramatic growth with low, lower than normal mining company risk. And I believe that for investors who want precious metals exposure, but who do not have the time or inclination to keep up with individual exploration companies, Sandstorm looks like a very attractive possibility. And I think if you listen to what Nolan has to say, you may come to agree with that. Uh, Nolan will be with me after the first commercial break, but right now I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me. And, uh, well, we're talking a little bit before the show, and uh, I know that... when I first started having you on, maybe a couple of years ago, you started talking about some major tectonic changes you perceived the, your charts were suggesting were in the making. Uh, the things that had been doing so well for the last nine or ten years, eight or eight to ten years, uh, stocks and bonds, uh, were probably not going to fare as well. But on the other hand, the things that hadn't been doing so good, commodities and precious metals, were likely to turn around and enter a bull market. Uh, well, Today we're in the elections. Uh, The elections are taking place today. A lot has been made of them. There seems to be a lot of um, a lot of angst in the country. A lot of uh, a lot of anger and a lot of uh, difference of opinions, diametrically uh, opposed opinions. Uh, And now you normally talk to us strictly on the uh, on your technical analysis, and I think that's smart because ultimately, who knows what's going to happen from a fundamental perspective? Nobody can figure that out, but somehow. Cooked into those charts, I believe, is the uh, the composite of all data that's out there. Uh, so, talk to us a little bit about what are your thoughts about the elections, and and how are you seeing uh, the charts, maybe suggesting where things might be headed in any event. Well, the uh, tectonic plate shift, which, by the way, is a term that was picked up by quite a few other uh, better known analysts than myself after after MSA did that a couple years ago. (laughs) In fact, I think the tectonic shift has begun. It clearly has. And a couple of examples. T-bonds, we said sell them. In what? uh, Fall of 2016. October 2016. Price then 166. They're now trading in the 130s. Okay? And there's more to go. Uh, So rates are rising. Prices are falling in the bond market since that point in time. Since a low in late 2015, gold has established a low risen sharply above it and gone into a range, but well above the low. So there's mm-hmm. another shift. Mm-hmm. Um, 
foreign exchange dollar peaked in late 2016, early 17. While it's trying to have a comeback rally, it's a uh, in our view, a failing return to the mean type rally back to the three-year average from the underside. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the deviant was a stock market, and with good reason, I think, because the central banks uh, had a specific goal. Bernanke even wrote a paper on it, uh, desired to see Fed policy drive stock prices up. And they did, and they did for a sustained period of time, and it was continued by the ECB policies, Bank of Japan policies of zero interest rates and negative interest rates. So we've had a huge distortion in valuations of all kinds of asset categories, and we think it's going to unwind. Now, sometimes things that begin to unwind start slowly, incrementally, almost imperceptibly, but can be measured. Uh, And then suddenly at the end, they snap. So what you think of as, oh, it's a slow train, suddenly becomes a train going off the cliff all of a sudden. We've seen mm-hmm. this before in the stock market, you know, with certain collapses here and there and so forth. But I think it's going to be all asset categories. As far as the election goes, I think it's fair to say that we're in for the last huge uh, post-bubble type event where the bubble that's been created is so big that it should have ramifications in every category we can possibly see. You know, maybe not in sports, but in politics for sure. <laughs> okay, it should be in markets. We should see the, the dramatic unfolding of prior error in pricing, too, too low in commodities, too high in bonds, etc. And in stocks, we think the top has been made in the U.S. stock market, which has been the strongest of the developed markets. And we think any rallies since then are baloney. Uh, now, the election coming up, there's, a, there's sort of a consensus, I think, out there among market people that if the Republicans won, it would be good for the market. Even Trump has said this. You know, if I lose, uh, if we lose this, the market's going to get tanked. Yeah. Well, frankly, I've thought about it from every which angle. And, uh, you know, I've written a political philosophy book. Um, you, you know my background. And yes, I yes. never let that get in, in the way of my technical work. But I think that regardless of the outcome of the election, the, down, the consequence will be downside in stocks, regardless. Mm-hmm. Either route should lead to a degree of chaos in politics that we've not seen in 50 years in terms of division and the way it exhibits itself, even on the street. And I think, for example, if the Democrats won, they would, they would have a sigh of relief on that side, but the, the voters for Trump would have a sense of uh, mobilizing at that point. They're sort of feeling good after their election and the tax cut and so forth and so on. But uh, the other alternative is if the Democrats lose, which would be a shock to most pollsters, uh, I think the political response in the street would be visible. And I think it would be something different than we've seen in 50 years of back and forth. You know, every eight years, somebody, one party dominates, another eight years, another party dominates, and it sort of oscillates, and it really doesn't matter because ultimately... Government grows, debt grows, uh, degradation of the money units grows. It's, it's sort of a trend that doesn't change. Uh, but if, if they don't win this election, I think the, the response uh, will look like the streets of Berlin, you know, against Merkel recently, the streets of Brazil. I think it could start to resemble that in the U.S., mm-hmm. which would put politics in the same degree of chaos that I think some of these markets are about to enter in the yeah. next year or two. And so it, it's fairly distributed. <laughs> so. Well, it's a it's it's pretty gloomy, I must say. But I but Michael, let, let me ask you this question because of the tectonic shifts. Uh, commodities were supposed to be pretty good, I thought. I think they well they they've not gone back to their lows. 
uh, I think the main component that's held us back from upside has not been oil and copper, which had big up moves, and now we're having down moves, which makes sense. They're linked to the stock market, in my view. I think the food commodities are the ones that have been depressed the longest. And if you look at the charts of the food commodities, you know, wheat, corn, beans, uh, cattle, most of them made their lows, you know, a couple of years ago. And all they've been doing, actually, is not going down, but sideways off of that low, trying to get going on the upside. And I'm talking about price charts now. Momentum, meanwhile, looks stronger than price does. So I I think that the, the major move in commodities, which is... Continuing to gestate is really near its its uh, breakout point. In fact, we've had breakout in sugar this last month. Uh, mm-hmm. Coffee's close to a breakout. Uh, markets that people don't even look at, uh, but a lot of food commodities are sneaking through the starting gates mm-hmm. without any headlines because all the mm-hmm. headlines are focused on what the pullback in oil, yep. which had a stellar two years. It went from twenty six dollars mm-hmm. to seventy six. Uh, it's deserving of a pullback. Uh, copper, same story, big percent move in the last two years, deserving of a pullback. I think those are masking what's actually going on in most commodities, which is to say firming up off of lows that are effectively theoretical zero for the many markets. Uh, so I think that the food price inflation we're going to see this coming year will upset the central banks, but then they're going to have a problem. If they try to respond to that by raising rates, uh, they're going to have a stock market problem. So mm-hmm. uh, I enjoy their pickle. All right, all right, Michael. Just with a with about a minute left, what about gold? Then, if gold can hold its own, it doesn't have to go over any yep. place. It, if everything else goes down, it's gaining, isn't it? Right. I don't think it's going to hold its own. I think it's going up. Um, I think there's some numbers up in the low twelve fifties. If you see that on gold in a weekly close, uh, I would start to lock and load on the assumption it's going further. You ever get back, back to thirteen hundred? Forget the highs of the last few years, which have always been in the 1360s, repeatedly, 2016, 17, 18. Uh, that's where most price people are looking for a breakout, if you get above that stuff. I'd say mm-hmm. if you get back to 1300, assume that's going to happen. Uh, and right. I think it's going to happen. I think the dollar's rally is failing. Uh, it doesn't have to sneeze much more than where it is right now to start to break down. And I think it was a reach-back rally. That, But gold, despite the dollar rally, if you'll pay yeah. attention to it, uh, Confirmed over the last you know six seven weeks. That's Where's true. The dollar rallied, so mm-hmm. said, I don't care. You're wrong. And well, I think uh, there's right. yeah, and there's that, and the uh, also the the prospects of both the stock and the bond markets declining together, which is which I remember very well in the early seventies in the nineteen seventies. That's what happened, and yeah. I think what, mm-hmm. if I hear what you're saying is prospects for inflation. You're talking about food inflation. We've had, as you say, a lot of oil inflation. Uh, so maybe a transfer of of money from the, for the from the financial assets to the stuff, huh? To the real tangible yeah, items. The real stuff, yeah. stuff that comes out yeah. of the ground. Yeah, right. Right, right. Very <laughs> good. And, yeah. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll, we'll have a we'll we'll um, uh, probably have, well we'll have a chance to to digest the elections next week and see uh, perhaps have a discussion about that, but. But the beauty of what you do, Michael, is that it's it's all baked into your charts, and uh, and your work has just been magnificent. Thank you so much again for sharing your time with us, and we'll look to go do it again next week. Thanks, Thank thanks so you. much. Well, folks, uh, we are going to break now, but don't go away because Nolan Watson of Sandstorm Gold will be with us to talk about that company's progress. Really, some real growth ahead of them going into the next uh, couple of years or so. So uh, we'll be right back with Nolan Watson.
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Nolan Watson. Nolan is the co-founder of Sandstorm Gold. That uh, occurred in 2008. Previous to that, he had served as the, the CFO of Silver Wheaton Corp., now known as Wheaton Precious Metals Corp. He and his team have built Sandstorm up to the point where the company's shareholders, I believe, will start to enjoy some rapid growth in earnings and cash flow, especially a couple years out from now. Sandstorm is a streaming and royalty company. Compared uh, to its peers, it is selling at a considerable discount. Uh, that fact, plus some other very important positive factors, makes this stock especially attractive at its current price of around $3.80 in U.S. funds. There are approximately 184 million shares outstanding, which, as Nolan pointed out the last time we spoke to him, the number of shares have actually decreased by about 5 million thanks to a buyback program that the company has been engaged in, uh, believing, as management does, that this company is very undervalued. And uh, so I'm really pleased to have Nolan back with me. Thanks for joining me again, Nolan. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. It's really good to uh, catch up with you because I think this is really truly a story that is not appreciated as much as it should be. Should mention that Sandstorm trades in the New York Exchange under uh, symbol S A N D Sand, and in Toronto S S L. Uh, Nolan, when you were last with me, that was September 13th. You explained why streaming and royalty companies bring with them less risk than operating companies, and you also explained some of the longer-term advantages that Sandstorm has over some of its better-known peers. Now, for the sake of those that may not have heard our last discussion, could you uh, perhaps briefly go over some of those uh, some of those ideas? Yeah, so the whole reason for the business model, the reason that Sandstorm exists is to to try to deliver uh, higher return, lower risk investments to investors. And the mining industry is fraught with risk, and so royalty companies, we take a lot of those risks out by, A, diversifying. So instead of investing in one mine or two mines, when you invest in a company, 
At Sandstorm, we have 188 streams and royalties around the world, so you get the diversification of different mines, different partners, different countries, and that acts as a portfolio and, and stabilizes those investment returns over the longer term. It's just a, a lot more stable way to invest. We also don't have a lot of the risks that mining companies do, so risks that operating costs are going to go high. Sometimes if you invest in a mining company where it costs them $1,000 to to operate their mine on an all-in-sustaining cost basis, if gold were to go from 1200 to 1000 they they're not making any money anymore and your returns go to zero. Whereas at a streaming and royalty company, we get X percentage of the revenue, so we're still making significant positive cash flow at all times from around the world. And even during hard times, we can uh, use that cash flow to buy assets on the cheap and, and profit from those when commodity prices go up. There are, are hundreds of other reasons to invest in royalty companies over mining companies and the safety it gives. One is exploration upside. We get all the exploration upside mining companies do, but we don't have to pay for it. The mining companies pay for the exploration, which for Sandstorm is significant. One of the things you had mentioned was uh, we have advantages over some of our other royalty peers, and one of those is the average property size underneath our royalties is dramatically higher than the royalties at a lot of our competitors. We have several of our largest royalties with hundreds or thousands of square kilometers per, per royalty area, and that's one of the reasons why for every dollar invested in Sandstorm, the amount of meters drilled is uh, is double the next highest uh, royalty company in the world from an exploration perspective and about four or five times higher uh, for every dollar invested than some of the big uh, royalty companies in the world. So uh, there are a lot of reasons to own a royalty company and within the royalty space there are a lot of reasons to own Sandstorm. Yeah, it would seem so, and I know that uh, you explained the last time before you go out and get involved in a project, one of the things you want to see that a lot of your peers don't seem to pay as much attention to is what are the exploration uh, upside? What is the exploration upside of the, uh, the potential to grow your company that way uh, with the other companies spending? I guess you probably try to get these uh, get your deals structured so that you have as much of this potential upside as possible. Um, in our last discussion, you referred to the growth profile that uh, you're really talking about kicking up the number of ounces uh, that you expect, the gold equivalent ounces that you expect, something like 140,000 by 2023, and that compares to 60,000 ounces uh, or thereabouts this year, I think, is what you have uh, projected. Uh, can you explain once again, perhaps for the benefit of people that didn't hear our discussion last time, what are a couple of the key projects that... Uh, are causing that growth in 2022 and 2023. Yeah, so over the next three years, we anticipate, as you said, that our production is going to go up dramatically. So next year, we should cash flow around $60 million U.S., but that's going to double over a three-year period based on solely the assets that we have already purchased. So Sandstorm has more growth built into its royalty portfolio than any of the other streaming royalty companies in the world right now and the, the three there are a number of mines coming online but the three big contributors to that number one would be hot modern that's an asset that is uh, fast tracking towards production we expect it to be up and running in 2022 so only three years from now uh, and then the other two would be Cerro Moro which is a Yamana mine in Argentina and then there's a third one which is Arizona which is being built by Equinox right now uh, Equinox and their Arizona project is, they just put out a press release saying it's 80% constructed already. Mm. And so that should be up and running and producing golds by Q1 2019, so just a few months away. 
We should be getting royalty checks from it by Q2 2019. Um, Sarah Morrow, which is an even bigger project for us, in fact, Sarah Morrow is, uh, to date, the other than Hot Modern, is the largest streaming deal that we've ever done. And when it comes online next year for us, it'll be the biggest stream to ever have come online in, in the history of Sandstorm. And that mine, we just got notice from Humana that it is fully constructed and they've met the, the conditions for uh, commercial production under our contract and therefore officially on January 1st, so coming up here in a couple months, that stream kicks in for Sandstorm as well. Mm, wow, that's uh, that's really good news. Uh, anything on Hot Madden since we last spoke on a, back in September 13th? Yeah, that project is moving forward uh, very quickly. I've, I've recently received notice that if people actually look in our investor presentation, they'll notice that we say construction is anticipated to begin towards the end of 2020. And just recently got notice that a lot of the early works coloring portals for the decline into the underground mine, tunneling and that type of stuff. They're actually looking at bringing it forward a year and doing it this upcoming year towards the end of the year, mm. which is fantastic, uh, de-risking the timeline and schedule towards production. I, I, I'll be very excited when that mine is uh, in construction because it is the coolest undeveloped gold mine in the entire world. Yeah, you were uh, the costs uh, of production to be something less than four hundred dollars U.S. I guess. Yeah, all in sustaining costs on a co-product basis and, are and, expected to be less than. And so, you never- and, and so, what uh, what sort of levels of production are anticipated or projected from Hot Madden? Yeah, so we have a thirty percent net profits interest in that contract. Right. Uh-huh. So we have a very significant vested interest in in that. And the level of production is expected to be about 260,000 gold equivalent ounces per year uh, right out of the gate. Now, some of the highest grades are, you know, it's already 11-year mine life and growing, but you hit the right grades right at the beginning. And, and so it's a huge amount of gold coming right as soon as the mine turns on. You had a news release that came out on the 9th of uh, October uh, listing a lot of the various projects and the, the progress of those projects. And uh, the Deviac Diamond Mine, now, of course, you're known for your gold and silver royalty and streaming projects, but uh, what caused the company to get involved with, uh, with this project, and, and how significant is it in terms of earnings and cash flow? Yeah, right now, it ranges from probably 8 to 10% of our current cash flow. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Deviac Mine, it produces... Uh, a very significant percentage of the world's diamonds. It produces millions of carats per year. We have a 1% royalty on it. It's one of the lower cost diamond mines in the world. It's operated by Rio Tinto. And they're mining from a few different pipes. And the significance there is the A21 pipe, which is their most recent pipe, just came online and just completed construction. And they're they're starting to mine that now. And so we're, we're receiving royalty checks from that from that as well. I, just a question about how you determine when and at what price you sell gold. You made an announcement recently that you sold 14,450 ounces of gold in Q3. So does management have a policy in terms of its sales of gold? Because, uh, you know, I mean, if I were managing the company, I'd probably be tempted to speculate. But you, you, have, to be, you, you're, uh, you have to keep your shareholders in mind. And, uh, and obviously, I just wondered what sort of policy uh, you have with regard to when you sell your gold? Yeah, we have a lot of things that we speculate on. Obviously, one is the value of royalties, but uh, right now, 
we think that although gold is undervalued, we think that our shares are even more undervalued. So typically what we do is as soon as we get a shipment of gold, we sell it right away irrespective of the price. And with some of our surplus cash flow, we're going into the market and buying back our own shares with mm-hmm. that so that when we do that, and our investors are inherently then getting more exposure to gold mm-hmm. for a share they own when, when we do that. We, uh, we've, as you mentioned at the beginning, purchased a number of shares over the last year. It's my expectation that we will, all things being equal, purchasing even more shares next year. Uh, buying back a lot of shares is something that is top of mind and, and one of our top priorities at Sandstorm right now. I'd like to get back to your October 9th uh, press release because there seems to be some really exciting things taking place there. One of the things that really caught my eye was a headline number from uh, uh, the Black Fox project that McEwen Mining is uh, is mining, 53.9 grams per ton over 8.23 meters. What can you tell us about the upside or the potential upside from Black Fox for, uh, for Sandstorm? Yeah, so Black Fox is continuing to deliver fantastic drilling results. We've got some information in in that press release, as you said, as well as some past press releases. Um, I'm being told that Rob McEwen is comparing this to Red Lake in the early days, and they've been saying that in their their investor days. There's a reason why they drilled 100,000 meters or approximately around that this year, and it's just a very exciting project. One of the interesting things about the Black Fox stream that we have is we paid just over $50 million for that stream, and we've gotten over $60 million back already. So we've made all of our money plus a return, and now they're still drilling it, you know, 100,000 meters a year for future exploration upside. So it's just turned into a, a great investment for us. <laughs> I guess uh, that's a good example of why royalty companies, if um, and, and why you're. Uh, your decision to go out and, and invest in companies that have a lot of upside uh, really is, um, is is very very special. In your October tenth, uh, on your October 9th release, uh, you also announced that Sandstorm had purchased 1.19 million shares of Entree Resources at a price ranging between uh, Canadian, I guess Canadian, 44 cents and 55 cents. Stock is currently trading today. I noticed at about 52 cents. What is your interest, and in why are you? What does Entree Resources have to offer, and why are you buying, uh, taking an equity interest in that company? Yeah, so what Entree owns is a, uh, a passive 20% interest in, uh, in the profit of a portion of the Turquoise Hill Mine in Mongolia, which is one of the world's best uh, copper mines. It's, it's a long-dated asset in the sense that Rio Tinto is not going to be mining on that ground for, for probably another several years, call it six, seven years, so it's it's a ways out. We think it's a logical takeover target by Rio Tinto. And uh, we did a, a stream on that asset a number of years ago. I think it was 2013 when we did that stream. And we bought a very significant equity stake in Entree at the time we did the stream in 2013. And so we just want to make sure that we... Uh, own and control enough shares that if Rio Tinto or someone does come knocking to take them out, that we can make sure that uh, that they pay a fair and reasonable price. So we're we're trying to keep the share structure tight and and be a key decision maker in that process and making sure that that they pay the right number. Wow, very good. Uh, so just a couple of other things. Uh, the, you have a project called the Ming Mine that you have an interest in. Can you talk about that? Eastern Canada. Yeah, it's a, it's a high-grade 
copper mine with some gold in eastern Canada, and we have uh, the right to buy about 30% of the gold. Uh, we did, did that deal back in, I want to say, 2010. They got the mine running in 2011-12, and so we've been purchasing gold ever since, and they continue to have great exploration success. The mine uh, looks like it has a you know, a, a multi-decade mine life ahead of it, and so we're, we're glad to have that one in our portfolio as well. It's one of the great things about about our portfolio is that we have 187 streams and royalties, and so we're, we're constantly putting up these updates like the October 9th one. There's a whole bunch of stuff that didn't even make the cutoff for the press release, or our press releases would be 40 pages long. <laughs> but there's just always, just always stuff happening in, in the portfolio, and it's, it's good to see. No question about it. When, uh, when might you be coming out with your Q3 earnings? Would that be coming out pretty soon? Yeah, the the target date for that is uh, mid-November. I think it's either the 14th or the 15th that we should be putting out results. Very good. And uh, so I suppose your, uh, you and your, your geologists that you have on staff there um, are continuing to look for new opportunities. That's something that as long as the gold market remains relatively weak, I suppose there's, there's still opportunities out there. Yeah, we're always looking for things. We're currently doing due diligence on a number of things. One of the challenges that we're having is that uh, one of the most attractive assets we think we can buy right now is our shares. So we are we're trying to allocate capital. And the way I'm thinking about it right now is that we want to use most of our cash flow from operations to buy back our shares. We don't want to go out and borrow money to buy back our shares. We think that's a bit risky. Yes. Uh, because the the borrowing doesn't come with increased cash flow and capacity uh, when you buy back your own shares. Mm-hmm. But then what we're doing is we're evaluating potential future deals against, does it make sense to do this, to borrow money to do this deal? So we're looking at upsizing our, our revolving debt facility. We, we're totally debt free right now. We have absolutely no debt, but uh, we do have a revolving debt facility. If we find something really exciting that's going to be cash flowing now or cash flowing within a year or so, uh, we might temporarily draw down on that debt facility to make that acquisition. We just don't ever want to have to issue shares for an acquisition. Yeah, I think the last time we spoke, you mentioned that your line of credit is something like 150 million. You could get more if you needed it, uh, if you wanted it. Um, and uh, your cash position, more or less, uh, in in the company now? Yeah. So right now we have uh, 20 million dollars in cash, approximately, uh-huh. but we also have uh, 55 million dollars of debt and equity investments in other mining companies. Anything else, uh, Nolan? Before we uh, wrap it up today. No, very briefly, I think one of the other things in that press release on October 9th was uh, Equinox Gold, so their Arizona mm-hmm. project. They uh, they just started drilling an area called Tatajuba, and, and we think that could double the size of the mine. And we should be getting 5 or $6 million of cash flow per year, royalty cash flow from them starting starting next year. So whenever you can double the mine life, that's uh, a pretty exciting thing. And so I would, I would encourage people and prospective investors to keep watching that story as well. Well, it is an exciting story that you have, Nolan, no question about it. And I think from a risk-reward perspective, especially now when uh, people aren't terribly excited about mining stocks, uh, Sandstorm makes an awful lot of sense, I think, for people that don't want to have to be bothered uh, keeping on top of uh, mining projects. Let let your guys do that job for the investors. And um, obviously, professionals that you have on your staff uh, know what they're doing. So I really thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Nolan, and uh, look to do it again sometime, I hope. Well, thanks very much. We appreciate it. All right. All the best. Well, folks, don't go away. Uh, We're going to be right back uh, with our next guest. William Angdell will be with us to talk about some of the geopolitical issues that may affect the markets in the coming year. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon, with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol GOLD on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again F. William Engdahl. Uh, William has been with us a number of times in the past. He's a prolific author, has written many books, uh, and one of them we want to talk to him about today uh, is uh, called Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars, uh, and in particular, a chapter that deals with global warming. Um, Welcome, William, and thanks for joining me again. Jay, it's very good to be back with you. Very nice to have you again. Uh, you know, I think it's incredible how biased the American mainstream press is, but for listeners who care to know the truth about the global warming or climate change politics, I would urge them uh, to Google Michael Mann and Tim Ball. Michael Mann, M-A-N-N, and Tim Ball. Uh, a very interesting story there, and William, we were talking before we went live here that you were familiar with this story in which uh, Michael Mann is a revered climate scientists, supposedly, by the mainstream, uh, but he decided to omit a huge amount of time and high energy, uh, high uh, temperatures, global temperatures, during the Middle Ages, long before the industrial industrialization, uh, and long before man could have had much of an impact on global warming. Well, that didn't fit the narrative, so it was dismissed by Michael Mann. And uh, Tim Ball, who's a retired professor, uh, suggested that uh, that Michael Mann, uh, rather than being a, a professor at Penn State, really belonged in the Pennsylvania Penitentiary. And uh, I guess, uh, actually, uh, uh, Mr. Mann, Professor Mann, didn't take to that very kindly and decided to sue Tim Ball in a British Columbia court for defamation. Well, I just learned that the, that the court uh, dismissed the case. First of all, it didn't reach the uh, the definition of defamation in uh, British Columbia. But secondly, the court thought that uh, even if you had some crazy ideas about science, and I don't know that Tim Ball's ideas are crazy, it seems to me, if this is true, what I what I believe is true, that Michael Mann might be the one that's 
uh, a little bit out to lunch. But in any event, the court dismissed the case because they said it doesn't measure up to the definition of defamation. And moreover, uh, any crazy idea or any idea with the discussion of science should be heard. It shouldn't be squelched. So I just thought that was interesting. But, you know, we'll not hear anything about this in the mainstream media here. I saw it on the Internet. I saw the court documents. It was posted on the Internet. Uh, but you'll never hear a mainstream uh, television channel or newspaper talk about this at all. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering, uh, William, do you have the same kind of propaganda or blotted out truth in Germany, in the German press as we have here in America? I would say it's probably even more extreme because the leading political parties and the leading uh, media over here is locked into a political agenda of austerity and uh, uh, income reduction and so forth that fits into the global warming. Uh, so Merkel's government uh, during the Fukushima uh, catastrophe several years ago announced an abrupt uh, change in policy about nuclear energy that it uh, had to be uh, phased out very rapidly. And uh, that, of course, is making the cost of electricity and the cost of energy in, in the German industrial economy go dramatically higher. Uh, the alternatives of, of solar and wind power are simply not uh, economically competitive for, for the heavy industrial base of Germany. But despite that, uh, Merkel listens to the voice of things, the groups like the Potomac Institute in Berlin and, and uh, others who uh, preach this religion of, of global warming. It's interesting, uh, Jay, you know, the, the original mantra was global warming, global warming, global warming, mm -hmm. back in beginning in the early 70s. And then around 2003, 2004, the data wouldn't fit that anymore. People were having horrendously cold winters in the Northern Hemisphere and so forth. So people like Al Gore and others came up with a linguistic trick. They said, it's climate change. And yes, every exactly. change in climate is, is due to man. So yeah. it's just nonsense, scientific right. nonsense. But we, All right, so, we buy it. Well, a lot of people buy it. Most people buy it. I think it was, a, a, I forget who, somebody said, Voltaire, or somebody said that, uh, it's it's uh, dangerous sometimes. It's dangerous to be right when the uh, ruling class is wrong. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it, you may be right, but if uh, but what what do they say? Might makes right or whatever. And um, so I guess that's the issue. And and maybe a lot of people just feel that they can't be free to express or even to explore the ideas because the gods that they trust uh, from uh, from MIT or whatever prestigious university say that something is true, then by golly, it must be true. And how dare you question them, I guess. Well, yeah. we, can't, we, we can't really get into the science. I've had people of, of some scientific background, uh, climate background on my show in the past. And may, this may prompt me to have some of them on again on both sides to hear the discussion. We can't really get into that today. But what I'd really like to do is, uh, is pick your brain a little bit in terms of the politics behind this because in on chapter five uh, chapter five of your book myths lies and oil wars 
uh, I think you, you really start talking about the origin of this whole climate change or global warming uh, propaganda that started coming out of the early 70s, right? And uh, talk to us a little bit about who were some of the people. I mean, these are really guys that are, are sort of buying into Thomas Malthus' idea about uh, the need to the need to uh, to limit the population, maybe even get rid of a lot of people, right? Well, the the uh, amusing thing about about the uh, uh, the global warming. Uh, cabal or religion or church of uh, whatever, uh, is that this whole thing emerged in the late 1960s, early 1970s through a a very distinct circle connected with the Rockefeller family and anybody who knows anything about the history of uh, American politics from the 1930s on to to the present knows that the dominant faction was the Rockefeller Standard Oil Group, mm-hmm. and they controlled the New York Council on Foreign Relations, they controlled the Brookings, they founded the Brookings Institution in Washington for their economic think tank, and uh, back in the 70s, they started creating NGOs left and right and center. And uh, what they were concerned about was the fact that the world, here, here their, their power base was the Wall Street banks, the military-industrial complex, control of Washington foreign policy and so forth. And by the late 1960s, Europe had recovered from the devastation of World War II. Their industrial base was more advanced than that of the U.S., which had really uh, been established in the late 30s and, and the, into the 1940s. So... Uh, and Japan, and uh, then you had Germany, France, and other countries beginning to develop natural relations uh, with Africa, with Latin America, with Asia, and so forth. So you had the prospect of power slipping out of the hands of of the Wall Street elites or the, uh, the powers that be whose base was the United States. And therefore, they came up with this notion, we have reached the limits to growth. They even financed a bunch of uh, fake scientists at at MIT, Meadows and Forrester, to create a a book called Limits to Growth that had all sorts of dire Malthusian predictions on on, uh, the future of the world in the next 20 years if we don't dramatically cut back our living standards and... and, uh, uh, stop growth, population growth especially. So uh, this was initially, uh, the, the funny thing is the key organizers of, the, of this, including Maurice Strong, a Canadian uh, lifelong friend of David Rockefeller, all of them were oil billionaires. And they talk about how we have to reduce our living standards and stop our consumption, uh, hunger, in the, in the industrial world to, uh, you know, keep the planet from being destroyed, to, to maintain a sustainable, this is the buzzword they love, sustainable growth. Yes, yes. And uh, this is the Agenda uh, 21 or 2020, 2030 as it now is, is called. And that all comes from the same people. It comes from Maurice Strong, 
who was designated by David Rockefeller to create something called the 1972 UN Stockholm Conference called Earth Day. And uh, that was the first high publicity event to uh, talk about lowering living standards around the world to, quote, save the environment. And these are all oil billionaires that are talking this wonderful <laughs> mantra. So that gives you an idea. Robert O. Anderson, who was he? He created the Aspen Institute, this wonderful environmental think tank. Robert O. Anderson was the chairman of Atlantic Richfield Oil Company, one of the biggest developers of North Sea oil. Uh, on and on the, the list goes. So they were worried about losing their dominance, their economic control, their power. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to understand the connection here because um, – Certainly, if if uh, reducing the population, they've certainly certainly that is that is happening among the West, among let's say the Judeo-Christian heritage of the of of Western Europe of, of Europe in entirely Europe and uh, and America uh, through uh, through abortion. Uh, certainly, uh, you know all the Western countries are losing population, and in coming into those countries. Uh, are are peoples of different uh, of different religions, different cultures. So yeah. in that in that do you, do you do you think there was any connection uh, with respect to that uh, you know to this family destruction of the family in the West? Well, I mean, I'm, tr- what, I'm trying. What what Rockefeller is a big new Brzezinski who was was the uh, first chairman of David Rockefeller's Trilateral Commission back in the 1970s. Uh, Henry Kissinger and so forth. They all are committed uh, eugenicists. They want reduction of the world's population. This is an obsession with them. And they regard uh, people essentially as as, uh, dirt. And uh, I'll give you a quote from there. The Club of Rome was created by David Rockefeller and friends at their estate in Bellagio, Italy in in 1969. And... uh, they, they uh, wrote a book where they said the common enemy of humanity is man. And in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up, we, we, the Club of Rome, mm-hmm. came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortage, famine would fit the bill. All these are caused by human intervention. Only through changed behavior can they be overcome. The real enemy is humanity itself. So... This, this is the agenda. Uh, you can't, I don't think, I've thought about this uh, over ma- many, many years, Jake. Mm-hmm. You can't look at their agenda as rational. It's not about money. It's about fanatical power and control over life on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it's the only, it's, it's like an obsessive religion that they have. Mm-hmm. That they, All right. Uh, yeah. You know, so- all right. It seems to me that you know, if you want to destroy, if you want to destroy a nation, what you do is destroy the family. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to give a nation to be too strong, what you have to do is take the boundaries of those nations away, and make believe that everybody is under your under your control, under the control of the elites, the one world government, if you will, which is they've actually talked about. And David Rockefeller himself has not been. Um, has not been bashful about his goals. A, a quote, a quote from his book. Actually, a quote from his book. Um, it, it's very interesting. It, uh, page um, page four hundred five in his own memoirs. 
He says, and I quote, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspir- and conspiring with others around the world to build a more integral global political and economic structure, one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. That was David Rockefeller, what he said on page yeah. five of his memoirs. So they're not being... They're not hiding the agenda. The agenda is to have the elite, the, the rich, the powerful, uh, basically break down borders. So in the United States, as we see uh, the Democrats and people of a liberal persuasion <coughs> wanting to open up the borders so that people can flood into America in, in endless numbers. I mean, this would be sort of like uh, pulling America down, its wealth down, and bringing us down and equalizing with everybody else so that the United States couldn't be powerful enough uh, so that they could be controlled by this elite, perhaps? This, this plan is about to be uh, advanced by a United Nations conference on migration, I believe, in the middle of December. And they want to make, this is funded by people like George Soros's Open Society Foundation, mm-hmm. by... Uh, all, all of the uh, think tanks that, that want to destroy the nation state. Uh, and the idea is, first of all, the military-industrial complex of NATO creates wars, creates destruction, disruption, and so forth, and economic policies through the International Monetary Fund in the developing world beginning beginning uh, the debt crises of of the late 1970s. And so through those very, very directed interventions using the international IMF and the World Bank, the banks of the North, uh, the US and Britain and and, uh, Germany and others, they create the destruction through agribusiness, which is another Rockefeller family project, going back to World War II, they create uh, the destruction of the economic base of the peasant agriculture economy, which was by and large a natural economy, not using chemical fertilizers and all these industrial techniques that uh, create such destructive food that we eat in the West. And they drive the people into the cities in... unsustainable numbers, and then they uh, begin to to come in with their democracy interventions, the Arab Spring and so forth, and create wars in those countries, and the wars create refugees, and the refugees uh, in Syria and elsewhere uh, come through the help of the NGOs, the, uh, you know, so-called democracy NGOs, uh, they come into Europe, they come into the United States and in, in massive numbers. And the idea is literally, and I have quotes from uh, Kudenhov Kalergi back in the 1920s, one of the leading European advocates of this, to destroy the nation state, to eliminate the sense of culture, of history. And here in, in the European Union, you have growing voices of resistance, I think one of the most articulate is one that many of your listeners maybe think is, is, uh, uh, you know, the 
grandson of Adolf Hitler, the way he's played in the press, but the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, is a mm-hmm. highly literate, highly compassionate, decent human being who says a nation state has to have borders. Right. Just exactly. like a human being has to have borders. And if someone violates my borders as a human being by attacking me violently, I have to be able to defend myself as best I can. And the same with a nation state. So this is the reason he's demonized and and whatnot. But he's one of the few voices that has had the courage to stand up and say, and you read his speeches, the man, he's an Oxford educated, very, very intelligent uh, human being. And, uh, And he's, says we need to do the best for the Hungarian population that we don't have the unemployment that right. was created all right, all right. after the yeah. All right, William, we're going to have to wrap it up here. We're just about out of time, but I think there's, I think uh, Mr. Soros, who's Hungarian, is not welcome in that country. But let me just ask you, so with regard to energy and the global warming and this idea of getting reducing the use of, of carbon uh, energy products, what they're trying to do, if I understand what your thesis is, that trying to reduce the numbers of people, drive them yeah. into the city. Uh, they can't afford uh, to live, you know, throughout the throughout the United States in suburbs anymore. Kids are not getting married; they're living together, closer together. Uh, and the whole th- the whole idea is to basically impoverish people so that they can't reproduce and and uh, and. So that, so that the elite can gain control. Is that basically the idea? Well, the... Uh, With 30 two seconds. Th- two things. The elite is losing control in the Anglo-American world over the last 20 years, dramatically losing control to countries like uh, Russia, to uh, the developing world, to Eurasia, China, and so forth. But uh, the other thing is they want to... Uh, they're, they're a little bit crazy. They want to destroy several billion people uh, on the planet in order to replace them with robots and artificial intelligence and so forth because they think then uh, their wealth will be secure. Uh-huh. I think it is as paranoid as that. Yeah. But uh, these are very sick people. These are not uh, uh, people in a healthy mind state. It would seem not. It's certainly based on uh, on everything that we've been brought up with in the Western world anyway. William, yeah. we, are, we are out of time. I should tell people... If they want to take advantage of your work, uh, it's williamangdahl.com. Uh, I, I hope I have this spelled E-N-G-D-A-H-L. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, I got it right. My wife uh, finally succeeded with me. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, so at williamangdahl.com. Go there, folks. Take advantage of William's work. He sends out some free stuff. He's got some excellent books uh, to to buy, and I know that you'll you'll enjoy them if you take the opportunity to read them. We do have to go. That's all the time we have. Thanks for being with us again, William. Uh, next week, uh, Dan Oliver is with me, my main guest, Ryan Gurdiski will be here to talk about the uh, uh, the elections of today, uh, the ramifications of them, and uh, Michael Oliver will be with me as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A gold rush has begun. 
Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com.